Six weeks in, what is the situation in the war between Israel and Hamas? We'll be talking to one of Israel's most respected military analysts and also to the man who coined the phrase Israel Startup Nation. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy two Jews on the news. I have to tell you, Jonathan, we are week six. Uh, The mood of the country is still uh, quite gloomy. We are definitely still uh, overcome with sorrow and also worried. Remember how in the first week we talked about the fact that Israel is a country with only one degree of separation, right? Everyone knows someone who is at the party. Everyone knows someone who is living on the border, the Gaza envelope, or someone who is one of the first responders, the soldiers or the police uh, uh, men and women. Now it's everyone knows someone who is fighting the war in Gaza. Remember, Israel is a conscription army. Of course, you, of course, know this. That means mandatory military service. A lot of, of young people fighting this war and reservists. So that means a lot of parents around the country not sleeping for the past three weeks since the ground incursion began. This is the mood. And when you think of the fact that only this week you have uh, some of the victims of the massacre of October 7th identified only now. That, of course, tells you something about what happened to them. Uh, people like Vivian Silver from Kibbutz Beri, who was 74 years old, a peace activist who was considered or thought to have been uh, taken captive, but now it is clear that her body was indeed found. And Roni Eschel, who was a lookout soldier, a private, 19 years old, uh, in Nachal Oz, sitting in the emergency operations center on uh, October 7th, I think a lot will have to be said about what happened to those lookout soldiers, most of them women, young women, uh, trying to actually warn the commanders for a few weeks about what was happening on the border. They weren't listened to. A lot of them lost their lives uh, in this uh, terrible tragedy. So so this is where we are. Uh, And of course, there's still hope um, that uh, hostages will be coming back in some sort of deal. But but it it is also clear at the same time that the window on that might be closing. Just your point about conscription army. I was notice the reaction when you remind people outside Israel that when we say conscription army, what you're talking about is 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds. I mean, when you say about parents, this really is the the Israeli army, which has this fearsome reputation, and people imagine this big hulking military machine, it's kids, it's 18 and 19 year olds. And, um, you know, teenagers who are straight out of school, this is what they do before they, when their counterparts in America or Europe would be going to college, they go instead into the military. So that's what we're talking about. And again, I think, often overlooked is the fact that boys and girls do this. And as you've mentioned on the border, it was disproportionately young women who were there and therefore were um, were victims on that day, on the 7th of October. Um, we talk about the hostages. Uh, we're going to get into that with our first of our two guests. Uh, and so we might leave some of that conversation till then. But I just thought the politics has not stopped. And it's something, you know, from our conversations on here, I've been keeping a particularly close eye on because to me, that's a crucial thing about what happens with the man at the top, um, namely uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. The it was a sort of taken as red that no politician could survive something like this happening on their watch that they would ultimately be held accountable and responsible. And in a way, the only conversation was about when does this exactly happen? Does it happen during this war or is this postponed for afterwards? 
But, you know, even in your TV studio, this story has moved on this week. And there's and it just, I mean, it happened just uh, this week. Just tell us about the, the sort of politics of that and how that might be moving. Yeah, we have to say that Yair Lapid, the head of the opposition, uh, sat uh, in, uh, as you said, in, our, in my studio yesterday, talking and, and saying Netanyahu has to go and he has to go now. Uh, and this is the first time that someone said it as clearly because there, are, there have been voices, as you said, saying, well, let's wait until after the war. We ask all the questions. We'll have this discussion. But he said he has to go. His way of doing it, by the way, is not going to elections that he said is too complicated during a war, uh, but to go uh, through with what is called a construction no-confidence motion, which means to replace the prime minister in this current Knesset, you will need for that a lot of uh, defectors, particularly from the Likud, maybe from other Haredi parties, something like 15 people that need to vote to get Netanyahu out. It doesn't seem like a realistic possibility now. But again, the sort of rage that has been building up against uh, Netanyahu personally is is growing. You have one of his, you know, former acolytes, Galit Istelat Barian, who was uh, um, writing someone, uh, writing a social activist uh, yesterday, not knowing this this will be published, but writing, I am enraged with Netanyahu and this government won't survive. So you feel that kind of movement. We have to say Netanyahu, if it is up to him, is not going anywhere. As we said, he doesn't think he's responsible. He thinks it's the military brass, the intelligence that failed, not him personally. And there have been stories about his uh, chief of staff trying to collect classified national security documents, uh, meaning preparing the case to show that he is not uh, at fault. The attorney general had to intervene and demand that all classified uh, material, uh, that she wants to see the classified material taken. But it gives you a sort of indication of where his state of mind is, right? He thinks it's not his fault, and he's preparing the case for the the day after. Or at least he's going to say it's not his fault. I mean, whether mm-hmm. in his heart of hearts, he must know it's his fault is a different question. But certainly as a political tactic, his number one objective is keeping himself out of jail. I mean, others have said that the really truly responsible thing to do would be to say, I am going to stand down in six months time. And therefore, you can know and trust that my only interest will be the good of the country. Now, mm-hmm. I'll be a, a sort of wartime leader who is now above and beyond politics. But that's not his style. I mean, that is the, the you know, that is uh, to ask of him something that he is not able to give because that is what a, a statesperson would do. And it is not clearly what he's going to do. And, and we have to note everyone under him, right? From the, the Secretary of Defense Gallant, head of uh, the Chief of Staff of the IDF, uh, Herzia Levy, head of Shin Bet all of them said, we are taking responsibility, it is our fault, and it is pretty clear that they will stand down after the war is over. Uh, so if Netanyahu is the last man standing, that says something uh, to the rest of, of the country. But listen, there is so much going on. There's so much going on in Gaza and the northern border and the question of the hostages and where this this is going. I think we have a, a perfect guest to talk to all this about. Amos Harel is the doyen of Israel's military correspondence. His reporting and commentary have been essential reading throughout this war. He is the military and defense analyst for uh, Haaretz. Uh, winner of the prestigious Sokolov Prize, author of uh, best-selling books, Amos Harel. Really good to have you on Unholy. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, we have obviously so many questions are in people's minds at the moment. Uh, just I'll start with one, just because it's the it's the one that's been on the in dominating the news certainly abroad in the 24, 48 hours before we're speaking. And this is about the Al Shifa Hospital, and I know the IDF took some. Uh, reporters in there to have a look around. 
and there's been sort of some evidence shown, some weapons shown, confirming the hospital's use, uh, military use by Hamas. I'm just wondering if you envisage there being a bigger demonstration. I mean, some of the reporting has been, okay, we've seen some, a few weapons, but this isn't quite as billed for what people perhaps were expecting to see in Al-Shifa. What do, what do, you, what, what do you know about that? Well, I, I think it's not over yet. It's an ongoing operation. Uh, we could talk about three different goals here. Uh, one is to prove to Hamas that uh, the IDF can go anywhere. This is something that was not in Hamas's plans. Uh, Israel going that deeply into Gaza and going to the heartbeat of, uh, of the Hamas operation under a Shifa hospital. Uh, the second issue is about legitimacy, international legitim legitimacy for Israeli actions. And I'm assuming that the Israelis are trying to find more proof for Hamas military activities under the hospital. Uh, we haven't seen a lot yet. It hasn't been impressive, but we'll have to wait and see what evolves during uh, Thursday and uh, Friday. And the third issue has to do with the hostages. Uh, since this was a hub of Hamas activity, there could be some, I don't think actual hostages will be held there, but there could be some information gained, which is extremely important uh, for the Israeli side. If after going in there, uh, you find evidence where uh, specific hostages were kept, if you can find DNA or anything like that, that would greatly improve uh, the Israeli situation regarding those attempts to release more hostages. So, so let's pick up on the hostages thing, because the Israeli thinking, we're six weeks into the war, three weeks into the, the sort of massive ground incursion in Gaza, and the Israeli thinking is the more pressure we put on Hamas, the bigger the chance of some sort of hostage deal, because they'll want a ceasefire so bad, they'll agree to, you know, releasing whatever it is, a few dozen uh, hostages. Is that, does that make sense? And how close are we to that indeed happening? It makes sense to Defense Minister Gallant, to the IDF's uh, top brass, and perhaps to some of the generals you invite every day to your studios, uh, ex-generals. Uh, I'm not sure that this is the reality because um, among decision makers, there are some who think that Israel needs to urgently go for some kind of deal regarding the hostages. Um, Arab media has reported that the current Qatari-American uh, proposition has to do with the release of 50 hostages, perhaps some more later, some 20 more later, and this would include mainly women and children. This is, of course, not enough, and there remain um, unsolved tragedies of all the other families who would be kept waiting. But the fear here is that the more the IDF continues with those attacks, it's true that Hamas would be under more pressure. But this is chaotic. This is a war scene. It's ongoing. It will be very, very hard to trace the whereabouts of all of these hostages, and we've seen Hamas use any kind of nasty trick in the book regarding uh, psychological warfare against those families. So who promises uh, that uh, from a week from now, we won't get response from Hamas saying, well, this hostage actually was killed uh, supposedly by an Israeli airstrike. This hostages we've lost connection with. This one, these children are, were kidnapped by a certain family in uh, Hanuna Sorafa. We don't know where they are right now. So many who support a deal, an urgent deal right now are saying, look, it's humiliating, but we've already lost on October 7th. We owe so much to all those 
Israelis living near the Gaza Strip or attending the the, the rave, the, the party, and, and, and being attacked there. And we need to do everything right now to correct some of this damage by bringing uh, them back home. So there's an ongoing discussion inside the cabinet, within the army, and so on. Not a lot of this has been reported to the public. And we haven't seen yet the outrage of the family regarding that. But I think we will see that in a few days if nothing evolves on this uh, specific arena. I mean, that talk there of just how much time, you know, is really available. We've been talking on the podcast a lot over recent weeks about this notion that there are stopwatches on the IDF. And they are sort of at least two. One is the actual one is the sort of diplomatic the international stopwatch the united states world opinion standing over israel saying okay you've now been at this nearly six weeks enough that's one stopwatch and then there's the kind of military stopwatch which is how long it actually takes to achieve the mission just on that if if we were talking to idf commanders right now just purely militarily how long would they say they need from now to achieve their mission uh, look, we've uh, heard um, Defense Minister Gallant, who's a sort of the hardliner among the cabinet uh, regarding this. This week in one of the press conferences, he said, we don't have any watches, only goals, only goals uh, to achieve. He's trying to deny this whole international situation uh, altogether. I think the generals are more aware of the situation, but still, and, and remember, this is an army that betrayed its Population, not intentionally, but failed them on October 7th. They need redemption. So they're going uh, with all their might forward, trying to attack more Hamas assets to occupy more areas for the time being. And they need time. Uh, there are two uh, different timelines here. One is saying within a few weeks, the northern part of the Gaza Strip, it would be over with. Perhaps not in, entirely, but Hamas would be defeated on the military level. It's already non-existent. On the civilian level, it cannot uh, give anything to the civilian population that remains there. And then we'll have to think what next. Uh, the other kind of watch has to do with the southern part, where apparently Yechia Sinwal and the Hamas uh, leadership are hiding underground, and where uh, so many Palestinian residents were forced to leave, pushed away by the Israelis from the north to the south. It's about two million people. And of course, apparently, many of the Israeli hostages uh, now functioning as a sort of a human shield for uh, Sinwal and his goons. This is what's going on right now. So if you want to strike, not only strike from the air, but do something on the ground there, and this is what um, Gallant has broadcasted for quite some time, how do you do that in an area which is populated twice as much as it was before with people who cannot go home because uh, there's still an on ongoing fighting in the north? And as you've seen on countless uh, videos from uh, BBC, um, uh, CNN, and so on, this area is destroyed. This is uh, much different than anything we've encountered before in, in, in previous Israeli-Palestinian wars. Is Hamas at any point, you described this, you know, the, the northern part of the Gaza Strip and the southern part, how degraded are uh, Hamas's capabilities? I mean, has, he re has this organization reached its breaking point at, at this junction that we're at? From my perspective and my point of view, unfortunately, not yet. Um, look, I don't trust a lot of uh, Hamas analysts on the Israeli side anymore because like, like us, like the media, they failed to foresee what was coming. Uh, the only guy I trust is Dr. Michael Milstein, who was the only guy to warn of what was about to happen 
uh, in the months and weeks before the the war started. And Milstein this morning said, uh, "We have a long way to go." Mm-hmm. It's just, just to explain who Milstein is. Milstein is a former um, a former officer, but also a doctor. He has a PhD in Arab studies, and he has been following Palestinian and to some extent Lebanese matters for the last thirty odd years. And he was, um, I think, the only voice in Israeli uh, media who was saying constantly in the year before the war that this is about to to explode, that we cannot count on Hamas being uh, so-called moderate and on Hamas being worried about the outcome for the Palestinian population. He warned against those 20,000 Palestinian workers, something that most of the security apparatus saw as a good thing. And he said, well, we're, we're giving them time and money, but this is going to explode in our faces soon. So this morning, he remained pessimistic about the, the outcome. It doesn't mean that the IDF has not hit Hamas badly. Uh, they're having a very hard time. Those two brigades that Hamas has in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, apparently one of uh, the commanders was killed. Uh, the other is on the run. Other uh, battalion commanders and company commanders were killed uh, by the Israelis. And mostly the opposition right now is not really organized. I asked one senior Israeli officer, uh, two days ago, how do they function? What do they do? He said they hide underground, they don't fight at night, they wake up early in the morning, they pray, and then they use a drone to try and surf and, 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 and see what happens in their near area and try to organize an attack by a dozen fighters, a dozen ser- terrorists, something like that. It, they cannot no longer perform in massive units because many of these units were either killed or escaped uh, to the south. And apparently, Yichia Sinwal is frustrated by this. On the other hand, uh, when you talk about the south, their capabilities were hardly hit. And as I said, this is a very densely populated area, so this would have to take more time. Another thing we can look at is the number of rockets being launched to the Tel Aviv area. They insist on doing that about once every day or two, usually at night, usually when you broadcast at around eight or nine, uh, on TV, but this is what they have right now. Mm-hmm. And it's not, the rockets remain, but it uh, has become very, very difficult to launch rockets from the northern part of the Gaza Strip because of the military pressure applied. So they need to uh, uh, launch them from the south, from the Rafa area. It takes them more time to do that, and they still try to maintain some ammunition uh, for the next round. And this is why um, the public around the center of the country is less worried about the rocket challenge than it was 20 or 30 days ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, a related question is, is I, mean, I take your point about Gallant, the defense minister, but uh, at the at IDF sort of command level again, how realistic do they think is the goal, the stated goal of eradicating Hamas entirely? Um, I would make the distinction here between uh, Hamas as a political idea and Hamas an idea, as an ideology uh, and Hamas's military capabilities. Regarding military capabilities, I think they're more optimistic than the war three, uh, three or four weeks ago. Because mm-hmm. if you followed what I wrote, I was really, really afraid of the ground um, incursion because uh, the IDF didn't have a lot of experience in that in uh, the last two decades. And because it was quite clear that if Hamas prepared so well for the attack, it was also ready for the next stage, for the defense. Mm -hmm. It turns out, and, you know, knock on wood and things could uh, change, but it turns out, at least after three weeks of fighting, that Hamas has has a very, very hard time at uh, trying to protect itself or trying to prevent 
the Israelis from coming forward. This massive war machine of tanks and armed personnel carriers with all this close help by the aircraft, by uh, uh, by the Air Force uh, as well, all those close airstrikes and all the, of that technology and all of that uh, intelligence and information about the Hamas whereabouts, this is quite a massive machine. I don't think uh, we've seen anything like it in uh, in recent years. It brings about, of course, a lot of disruption and unfortunately a lot of what's called collateral damage, meaning innocents being killed. But on the other hand, uh, it's a very, very strong war machine and Hamas is having difficulties with that. Considering um, that the next phases, it could be, as I said, more complicated to do, especially since so much time has passed. It's not Time does not only affect the enemy, it affects us as well. People are tired, different uh, units have suffered casualties, not as bad as we expected when we entered Gaza. But this is, you know, there's a price to pay for that as well. This has been six weeks of fighting and of nonstop tragedy from the Israeli perspective. We're looking at the South, obviously, because Gaza is, is our focus, but let's turn our gaze to the North. And what are, at this moment, it can all change, obviously, that the Hezbollah and Nasrallah are playing this game with Israel of, you know, taking up the temperature a notch every day. Where, where I mean, when you assess what the chances are that a second front opens up in the near future, what does that look like? Look, it's a very dangerous assessment. We've seen, again, I've mentioned October 7th, all of us, including the media, failed miserably at seeing what was coming. So after that, um, it's it's not surprising that the Israeli government has a hard time believing the intelligence community when it says, well, we're not so sure that Hezbollah is going to strike. Yeah. So it, it's a, it, it's a, we're walking through a minefield here, or if you, to use another cliche, he's, he's walking a very tight rope, Nasrallah himself. Uh, there was a leak to Reuters yesterday. I'm, I'm not sure if this is entirely dependable, but it makes sense. It says that Khamenei, the spiritual leader of uh, Iran, had uh, a visit from Haniya, one of Hamas's uh, leaders, and that he told them that Iran was surprised by what happened on October 7th, that the Palestinians didn't notify Iran in advance, and that Iran was not about to enter a war with the United States and Israel because of what the Palestinians did, because of what Hamas did. It makes sense to me. I'm not sure if it's entirely correct, but it makes sense. What we saw in the last two speeches that uh, Nasrallah gave, the only speeches he gave during the war within a week, he was very, very cautious about uh, promising to enter the war. He's actually saying, well, what do you want from me? I'm already at war with Israel. And it's true that his uh, attacks that started October 8th, a day after the war started, did force Israel to leave a lot of uh, soldiers, mostly reservists, on the northern border. It also forced the evacuation of tens of thousands of people who used to live on the Lebanon border and are now incapable of coming back, A, because there's a low-scale kind of war going on there, and B, because even if the war in Gaza ends, who could uh, commit to them or promise them that something similar to what happened on the Gaza border would not happen at their homes, that they would find themselves hiding in their homes, trying to protect their kids with the IDF failing to appear to help. This, this could happen. So the Israeli demand, once this is over, would be uh, one, to push Radwan, which is Hezbollah's elite forces, the, their commandos who are much more uh, trained and have much better uh, weaponry than uh, Hamas, to push them away north of the Litani River, according to the decision 1701, which was the outcome of the Lebanon War in 2006, never fully implemented. 
The other issue would be Hezbollah's rocket arsenal, which is, again, much bigger than Hamas. It has apparently 150,000 rockets covering all ranges in Israel, hundreds of them being accurate, specifically accurate rockets, which is a problem of its own. So what you begin to hear, some people interviewed in your studios are already saying that, what you begin to hear is that um, Gaza is not enough, that at one point or another, and you don't have to be a hardliner to realize that this is an ongoing problem, which is com- becoming even uh, harder to solve. At one point or another, would Israel have to initiate a preemptive strike against Hezbollah in order to solve this once and for all? This could lead to war again, to a regional war with Iran, especially because Iran has been building Hezbollah as its answer to a possibility of an Israeli or American attack against its nuclear sites. So it's all very, very complicated. I'm slightly less worried than I was during the first week or so when things got out of hand completely and it seemed as if it was going to escalate to a full-scale war. The American presence here, this uh, speech that Biden gave with the don't to Nasrallah and Khamenei was extremely important. But the question is, how do you keep things stable and how do you maintain this deterrence against Hezbollah? And again, if you talk to Israeli generals, nobody wants to hear about deterrence balances anymore after being surprised so badly. Uh, last month. I, I mean, glad you mentioned the American role. And uh, a lot of people, I think, are, you know, quite late crediting Joe Biden with averting what could have been that big escalation and expansion right at the beginning. What about now, though? Because there seems to be mixed signals coming from Washington, where there's full support voiced most recently by Biden himself. But then there are these statements often associated with the State Department, with Tony Blinken saying, Israel has to, you know, bring down the toll of civilians killed. Is it your re- estimation that the public statements of pressure on Israel, sort of for restraint, are for show and in private, the Americans and at the highest level from the president, the Americans are giving Israel essentially as much time as it wants and needs to do the job? It's very hard to tell, especially for me from uh, Tel Aviv, trying to to realize what's uh, going on. I think you can hear two different voices from the administration. And I think Biden himself is the the greatest Israeli supporter among the administration. I'm not so sure that others uh, feel exactly the same way. But it only goes to so far. And at one point or another, all those tricks that Netanyahu is playing right now at Biden's expense, may come back to haunt us. His absolute refusal to discuss the day after, his out-front refusal to talk of any role for the Palestinian Authority in Gaza, the fact that, like Smotrich and Benvir, he's saying no peace process should be allowed with the PA, he's actually comparing the PA to Hamas, and therefore not only to ISIS, but to Nazis. You hear the same kind of terms being used. All of this, at one point or another, could get on President Biden's uh, nerves. For the time being, I think that emotionally, ideologically, morally, he supports the Israeli cause, and he understands, perhaps much better than many of his so-called progressive voters, where Israel is at and what happened, the horrific events of October 7th. Is that enough in the long run? I'm not sure. Biden is a politician. He needs to get reelected. Uh, according to all polls, uh, the progressives and the younger uh, voters among Democrats are losing patience with these, this war. And this is why I think that Gallant is wrong, that there are clocks ticking here, perhaps not as quickly as some might think. But in the end, Israel would face the dilemma what to do and how to continue if it needs to continue while not upsetting the relationship with the United States. And it's not only about public support. 
it's about those aircraft carriers uh, being deployed very, very quickly to the Middle East. It's about those fighter planes, about 200 American fighter planes in the region put there to deter Hezbollah and uh, Iran. And it's about supply, weapon supply. Israel needs that supply constantly to help it continue fight against Hamas and to prepare for a much a possibly much larger war uh, with Hezbollah. So you cannot annoy the Americans too much. And you have to remember, you may vaguely remember those uh, nine months of uh, attempts to to reach reach a judicial overhaul. You think, I, I think I can remember something about that uh, until September. What was Netanyahu doing at that time? What were Netanyahu's followers doing? They kept annoying and humiliating two kinds of people, the Biden administration on the one hand and the Israeli pilots on the other. Well, apparently Netanyahu needs both to try at least not to lose this current war with uh, Hamas. Yeah, he famously said that we could do without a few squadrons in the Air Force, but we can't do without an Israeli government. So that's a little bit mm-hmm. different today, definitely. This this will have to be, uh, sadly, our last question, uh, Most. but when you look at, you, you mentioned the day after, and obviously Israel was hit so badly by this. We're still reeling from it. We're still mourning, all of us. What does the day after look like? What does it look like for Gaza? What does it look like for Israel? What does it look like for the Israeli society? I know this is a huge question, but what do you think when we start three, you know, sifting through the rubble of everything that has been going on here? Where are we heading? It still depends on what would happen on the ground. Right now, we started this war with a terrible deficit, not only of 1,200 lives lost on the first day, but also what happened to the Israeli public, the Israeli efforts. And I think that uh, it's something that is very hard to to fully understand for foreigners, for people following what's going on here uh, from far away. This whole ethos of the soldiers protecting the civilians, this is, you know, this is an army built from the ashes of the Holocaust, a state that was built on this. All those photographs, all those um, current memories and current traumas of what happened, of women trying to protect their kids and either being killed or raped or kidnapped to Gaza with their kids. This is a huge shock. And no matter what Israel does right now, we're trying to play catch up with a terrorist organization that has crossed all red lines and feels that it is winning. Um, Sinwal doesn't think in terms of next week or a month from now, and he doesn't think about the, the Palestinian population in Gaza, which is evidently doing much worse than it did October 6th. He's thinking of, of himself as the new Salah Hadin, protecting or defeating the, the current crusaders in Palestine. This is what he thinks. So in order for us to change that, that will take time. I think in the end, what we could hope for is a sort of a draw. For me, the top priorities are releasing the hostages who have, uh, you know, the people who are mostly affected by this with no fault of their own and trying to defeat Hamas as much as possible. I'm not too optimistic about, you know, destroying, eliminating Hamas and all that nonsense that we hear from the generals and politicians. I think we could make Hamas pay a price, and I think we could send a signal to the region, well, these Jews should not be messed up with again. This is too much. Uh, You've killed too many of us. Uh, We were, you know, we were negligent in protecting ourselves, but things have to change. About the future, there are so many problems here. I mentioned Lebanon. We didn't talk about the West Bank. We didn't Mm -hmm. talk about settler violence there. We didn't talk about reservists being part of some reservists being part of the problem right now. About Smotrich refusing to pay money for the Palestinian Authority, which would mean in a month's time, Palestinian police not getting salaries and perhaps joining Hamas 
to attack Israelis. There are very, very big problems here. It's very hard for me to solve them. This is why I never planned for a political career. Uh, but I think that, you know, it, it's one step at a time. Right now, the, the immediate issue is to try to release as many hostages as possible and to try to inflict as much damage as possible on Hamas's military capabilities in order for us to slightly improve the situation. But it's a, you know, it's a long run. It's going to take a lot of time and it's something we're not used to. We kept talking of the need for short wars, decisive victories. This is not the case. This is something completely different, unfortunately. Amos, uh, that's uh, exactly why, as I said before, your work on this has been absolutely essential reading to understand it. Thanks so much for sharing that analysis with us here, to, here on Unholy. Thank you. Always a pleasure to listen to Amos Arel and to read him. I mean, he's he's incredibly smart. I have to say to you, uh, Jonathan, that I think 10 days uh, before uh, October 7th, he uh, published an article in Haaretz. And the title of it, because it was a special sort of edition of Haaretz, 50 years of the Yom Kippur War, and the title was, uh, The Next Surprise Will Come. The question is how prepared uh, Israel is. A uh, very prescient question. Uh, a headline there, and uh, we know the answer now. But that sort of was in my head while we were while we were talking to him. Yeah, no, always worth uh, hearing him because he is incredibly well informed and very sort of judicious. He doesn't get kind of gung ho or carried away. He thinks it all through, and um, you always learn a lot from him. Now, normally, as you know, long time listeners will know, we usually only have one guest on the podcast, but this is not an ordinary week because on Tuesday, possibly the largest pro Israel demonstration in American history took place on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Uh, initial estimates said the crowd was about 200,000. That figure was later revised upward. Possibly as many as 290,000 people gathered there to demonstrate solidarity with Israel, also to take a stance, they said, against anti-Semitism and uh, inevitably calling as well for the hostages held by Hamas to be freed. Um, huge event addressed by the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, also uh, the Speaker, the new House Speaker, Republican Mike Johnson. Uh, Schumer bellowing out, we stand with Israel guest speakers, including Christian evangelicals. There was a song performed by Mattis Yahoo and Jews flying in from all over America, including, you know, transcontinentally from California and so on, holding up uh, placards, those that have gone all around the world, those posters saying kidnapped with the faces of the hostages and gathering, waving American flags and Israeli flags right on the steps of the US Capitol. So a huge Jewish event, the biggest Jewish uh, gathering like that since the days of the campaign to free Soviet Jews back in the 1980s, and certainly the biggest um, show of strength really since uh, this war began. And a lot of the people there saying they were doing it in part to show that Jews could gather, supporters of Israel could gather in big numbers almost as a sort of counterweight to what people have seen in cities all over the world, which is huge demonstrations on the streets for um, Palestinians and in solidarity with the people of Gaza. Uh, you know, conflicting messages. There were some sort of very hawkish messages. There was also a peace block, uh, which was pushing the message of future coexistence. So the full diversity of Jewish views, all of which made us think uh, this would be a very good week to speak to someone who 
knows Israel well, but also is uh, intimately familiar with American Jewry. And so this week, we thought it would be good to have a second interview to hear a perspective from how things look from the United States. Dan Senor was foreign policy advisor to Mitt Romney, a former Pentagon official based in Baghdad and at the U.S. Central Command in Qatar, studied at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He's also a host of a popular podcast, which I really like, Call Me Back. He's the co-author of the best-selling book from 2009, Startup Nation, The Story of Israel's Economic Miracle. And his new book is The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. Dan, welcome to Unholy. We're so glad to talk to you. You're neat, Jonathan. I'm a I'm a huge fan of the podcast. You've you've been like the surround sound for some pretty dark periods in 2023 uh, for me, and you're also the surround sound while when Saul and I were writing this most recent book. So it's uh, it's great to be with you uh, and be able to do some you know commiserating, some reflecting, hopefully. So so in a way, um, I had felt that empathy for you when I came across your book because I thought it is actually in some ways every author's nightmare when a book comes out that apparently, and I'm going to stress that apparently, is overshadowed by events, by news events. Uh, I say apparently because in a way you have made in your in the week since the 7th of October an argument that not only do the things that you've just set out still stand after the 7th of October, but in a way they help explain some of the stuff that's happened inside Israel since the 7th of October. And, you know, I've been there and made some artful arguments of why a book that apparently has been upended by events still stands. But I think actually there is a logic, a powerful logic to the case you make. So just unpack for us the, as it were, post 7th of October argument for that indicates why the, the trends, the phenomena that you've set out in the book actually help us understand what's happened inside Israel since. Yeah. And let me, let me answer by Look, I think there are a few pieces of infrastructure in Israeli society, uh, these what we call these societal shock absorbers, that A, prevent the country from ever really spinning apart, and B, in a crisis, guarantees the country bounces back. One, which is just there's nothing like it anywhere else in the Western world, the role that national service plays in the country. And even though not everyone participates in it, most people do. And people say, well, if, if the most Haredim don't, most ultra-Orthodox don't participate in it, it it's a pretty, um, you know, homogeneous uh, uh, group of people, but it's not. It's people from the left and right who are serving the army. It is people who are secular and religious, even if they're not ultra-Orthodox. It's people, Jews from the East, from North Africa, and Jews from the West, who are all, all of them serving together. I've seen footage, moving footage, from the hull of a tank or from these armored personnel carriers since October 7th, where you see sitting around in these vehicles Jews on a Friday afternoon bringing in the Shabbat. I mean, it's an, it's a very powerful. I've seen these images on social media where they're training and they're getting ready to go into Gaza and these Jews are bringing in Shabbat in, an, in a military vehicle and they're from all walks of Israeli Jewish life. I mean, it, you see an Israeli with a tattoo and a, and a ponytail and these, they're seeing Shalom Aleichem with a, an Israeli who's, who's wearing a yarmulke. And it, it doesn't happen overnight. The fact that most Israelis give part of a formative part of their lives, 18, 19, 20, 21, to this national service program, mandatory national service. It doesn't just mean that they develop great skills, which is what we wrote about mm -hmm. in Startup Nation. It gives them great skills that there's a reason why so many of these people come out of the military. As Eric Schmidt from Google told us at the time, he said, you take the average Israeli 25-year-old and you put them up against their peers anywhere in the world – 
any day of the week, Google will hire the Israeli because at 25, you just don't have young, these people at that age anywhere else in the world who have that kind of leadership experience and management mm -hmm. experience. That's what we wrote about in Startup Nation. What we didn't write about in Startup Nation is that, which we write about in this book, is that you also have people from all walks of Israeli life. So it's very hard to um, think of someone as the other when you've spent this meaningful time with them. We, you know, Mika Goodman, who features prominently in our book, you all know is a prominent public intellectual, he said he'll never forget after Trump was elected in the United States, he told me. And he went to go meet with some academics in the West. It was at some conference at Harvard or somewhere. And they were his peers. They were like the Mika Goodman equivalents of Harvard. And they're meeting, and it's just after November 2016. And they said, um, they said, you know, I met a Trump voter. And, and this is how they think. And I, I read a study about a Trump voter. And this is, this is what they think. And as though they were talking about people in a lab or something, an experiment. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he was jostled. And he said, you're, you're talking about your fellow citizens, right? Like these are your fellow... And they were, and, and he just said, he's, Mika says, I have people who I've served with in the army who are still my friends. I still do reserve duty with. As much as I've, I viciously disagree with them politically, I would never think, I've never talked about them as though there's some foreign element in my society. And so I think the army does that. And mm -hmm. I think the national service, what it also does in Israel is it gets people at a very young age thinking about their role in society as part of some kind of communal obligation, some kind of that they're part of some kind of national project. Mm -hmm. In the West, certainly in the United States, I see it now with, you know, like I said, I have teenagers. You watch the way these kids are groomed to make it in life and how they apply to colleges and the admissions process. And it's all me, me, me. What are your grades? What are your SAT scores? What are your it's all about individual excellence. And there's no incentives in the system to judge merit based on how you perform as part of a team, part of a community, part of a, a group, part of a country. And in Israel, you may be talented and be competitive for some of the best units in the army. But if you are singularly, you know, there are obviously there are exceptions, but if you're singularly focused on your own personal ambition, it's unlikely you're going to make it in any of those settings. And so the whole incentive structure, and I think it starts at a young age, it starts, you know, we talk about gibush, we, this Hebrew mm -hmm. word for which there's no great English translation, but I think it starts at a, it's, it's about thinking about the group, living as, as, as sort of engaged in group bonding with people you're, you're close to or part of your, your community. It starts at a young age. It starts in the scouts movement, which is a big deal in Israel. It's not a, as big a deal in the, in the West. And then it, you know, continues into the army and beyond. The incentives are to think of yourself as part of a community rather than just thinking about your own individual excellence. Well, I mean, there, there will be questions about the fact that at the end of the day, it doesn't, it's not indicative of the fact that we're a normal country, right? I mean, the fact that you're under an existential threat and this is what you have to do, There's, there has to be a conscription army. But but I, I kind of want to ask you, Dan, because maybe it's an unfair question. I mean, Startup Nation is your coinage. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, on, on October 7th, Startup Nation lost. I mean, we have to say that, or at least it failed uh, miserably. I mean, not the high-tech surveillance or the intelligence or the, the $3 billion fence at the border. None of that could stop 3,000 uh, terrorists. And, and the feeling in this country right now is that not only did Startup Nation not save us, 
maybe in a way it was our Achilles heel. We kind of fell in love with that idea that technology can save us, high tech can save us. And we kind of forgot or wanted to forget the fact that we are in a very tough neighborhood. And there are people here that would kill us if they got a chance and they did get a chance and they did do it. I mean, wasn't that in a way something that we maybe fell in love with? I know it's an unfair question so, to ask. No, it's, just, it's not an unfair question. Of. It's it's Look, at the end of the day, technology is a tool. It's not a strategy. Mm-hmm. It's a tool that can augment a strategy, but it's, it's not a substitute for a strategy. And I think mm-hmm. there is something to what you're saying, that, that Israel fell in love with, uh, or the IDF, the security apparatus, fell in love with all the bells and whistles of it being a high-tech superpower, and which is great until your enemy plans an invasion of your country analog it appears that the, we don't know. Obviously, we'll learn a lot uh, once this war is over. But it appears that this was this war was planned to evade, to elude all of all of the bells and whistles and the kind of whiz bang of Israeli tech. So, look, why 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 did the Sunni Gulf get so drawn to Israel? It's not because they were lovers of Zion, right? It's not because they were they were they had suddenly decided you know they they wanted to be part of our of our communal experience. Um, it's it's they were attracted to Israeli strength, and and I would hear this all the time from leaders in the Gulf. All the time, they were they were dazzled by what they perceived as Israel's military and intelligence capabilities, which they thought were indispensable to their own defense of the the Gulfs, the Sunni Gulfs' own defense uh, against Iran, and so they wanted to piggyback onto Israel's capabilities. They were dazzled by Israel's being an economic regional superpower and a global technology superpower. And so I, I think they were impressed with that. Israeli leaders got drunk with it, with with how attractive that was. I, I This worries me, Yonit, more than anything, because I, you know, people debate, is this the worst invasion Israel's had to experience since this time or that time? And the, 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 the comparison's often made to the Yom Kippur War. It's just like the Yom Kippur War. I disagree. I actually think October 7th was worse than the Yom Kippur War. I agree with you. Because Yom Kippur War was obviously awful. Israel bounced back, and the first two weeks were horrendous, but Israel ultimately bounced back, and it got into a military position where if it wanted to, it could have basically taken Cairo and Damascus. It didn't, uh, but it could have. And those countries' armies, Syria's and Egypt's, were, were exposed to be paper tigers in the end. And this, there were obviously a lot of casualties during the Yom Kippur War, but not a lot of civilian casualties. It wasn't like those armies were running, wreaking havoc on, on Israeli towns and cities. And what worries me for the first time in Israel's history is its military was, was revealed to be a paper tiger. And um, that, that if a ragtag group, and I know it was more sophisticated than a ragtag group, but just the optics of these guys with, you know, motorcycles and pickup trucks and just mm-hmm. storming the border and, and penetrating what the Sunni Gulf thought was a, was a juggernaut exposed Israel to, and that they could stay in the country for 48 hours or 36 hours when they were still fighting the IDF in the south for, for 20 towns and take over 200 Israelis over the border. And they, some of them were going back and forth. Like they'd go and then they come back like, hey, this, it's like an open party. Uh, the degree to which it exposed Israel as having huge vulnerabilities is a, is a massive problem that Israel needs to repair and it needs to repair quickly. They need to send a message to the Sunni Gulf 
we got this. It was a hiccup. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons why it ha- happened. It won't happen again. And um, watch us. Watch us bounce back. And I think if they don't do that, I really worry about Israel's role in the region and the world because so much of Israel's strength over the last number of years is not because Israel is perceived as vulnerable. So much of, of its growth economically, diplomatically, the channels have opened diplomatically, and geopolitically is a function of the fact that it was a, viewed as a country on the rise, not a country on its back foot. Yeah. So let's just get you to put on your foreign policy advisor hat. I know you did that for Mitt Romney. We just, uh, you only mentioned you've, you know, you're an official at the Pentagon. So what would be the policy remedy, the prescription for a couple of the things you've addressed? So one would be this point about restoring deterrence. I mean, I, I don't know whether you think the current Israeli military operation does that, or actually if it just shows that it's having to react to having lost the power of deterrence on the 7th of October. But how do you restore that so that those countries who admired its strength do so again? That's one thing. But larger than that would be, you said that, you know, the mistake was that tech is to confuse tech with uh, being a strategy when really it's just a tool. Okay, so let's put on that great startup nation brain collectively and say, what is the big strategy for, you know, not just the day after, but for the years and decades after that can deal with the fact that, you know, you've sketched out a country that's amazingly resilient and on all these sociological indicators is doing better than the, everyone else, but has one big problem, which is in it's in a neighborhood where it has to kind of fight for its life and fight for its place and has hostile neighbors all around it. So what's the kind of, you know, genius of Israel answer to that? <laughs> so I think, I don't think there's such a thing as retoring, restoring deterrence with Gaza, because that's effectively what Israel tried to do since 2005, really 2007, when Hamas took over, which was a containment strategy. It was, I mean, they never would want to say it this way, but effectively what they, obviously, this was a lot of the Netanyahu years, but it wasn't just the Netanyahu years. It was, you know, Naftali Bennett said that he was more or less involved. I'm not blaming any, I'm not, I'm just saying this, this was, this was consistent through a number of governments in a number of configurations, this idea that Israel basically made the decision that it could effectively learn to live with Hamas. And they would have a, you know, an operational, very practical relation. Yes, there'd be skirmishes from time to time. Hamas would fire a bunch of rockets. Israel would fire back from the air. Things would get hot for a couple of weeks, and then they'd quiet down. There'd be a cease, ceasefire, and that would be the end of it. And undergirding this was the belief, mistaken belief. By the way, I, I, I believe this too from afar that at the end of the day, Hamas felt some semblance of responsibility to govern, that they weren't just a death cult, that they that they weren't just some messianic organization that was trying to implement the exact words of its own charter, that it actually wanted to run the Gaza Strip. And, um, and so that's over. The idea that you could have a deterrence capability set up with that a, a piece of territory that could be occupied by an organization like Hamas which is not just a threat to Israel's population in the south, but a couple hours, two, three hours away from some of the largest population and economic centers of the country. I mean, it's just unsustainable. So the idea of containment with Hamas or another version of Hamas in the south, that's over. I'll come back to that in a moment. It also means that Israel cannot just learn to live with Hezbollah in the north. I mean, you cannot – what October 7th exposed is you cannot have two genocidal – 
organizations sworn to your destruction on your northern border and your southern border simultaneously, who in some way, shape, or form are coordinating with one another and who have massive capabilities. As Hezbollah in the north has 10 times the capabilities and manpower as Hamas did in the south. Like a country the size of Israel, the size of the state of New Jersey, just cannot live with that. And, and, and then finally, if we believe, which I do, that Iran is the center of all of this, Israel effectively has a containment policy with Iran. If we, God forbid, Iran were to take direct, very direct action against Israel, and we were to look back the way we're looking back at after Hamas took very direct action at Israel, and we'd be saying, well, it was effectively a containment strategy. Sure, Israel would send in resources to take out scientists, nuclear scientists, and they would launch cyber attacks, Stuxnet, and they would... Israel was doing stuff, but at the end of the day, they were kind of managing Iran. I think they, the mindset has to change on that. So, so now I'm laying out for you, Jonathan, a very ambitious agenda. And, and I just, I just, I, so I, I want to I caveat it by saying, I think the worldview and the doctrine of the Israeli security establishment was completely upended on October 7th. And to some degree, again, I'm not a participant, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a practitioner, I'm an observer, but even for me, how I think about it, it was upended. And Israel has to complete, the idea that learning to live with one Hamas or a version of Hamas in the South, learning to live with Hezbollah in the North, learning to live with Iran, which is arming and training and coordinating and organizing all of this, while Iran is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from having a nuclear weapons capability, this is unsustainable. There's no containment strategy that works with this setup. And oh, by the way, with China and Russia now coming into the region, China especially. Here, Israel spent years thinking it was warming relations with Beijing. And, and, and now we see where China, who wants to take much more of an active role and has assets in the region that it never had before. It's unsustainable for Israel. And so Israel, I think, what it's doing to Hamas is eventually going to have to do to Hezbollah. And I think Israel and the United States are going to have to deal with Iran in a much different way than they have been dealing with Iran, which makes the relationship with the United States, it was already important. Mm -hmm. I think um, some Israeli leaders were a little loose with the importance of that relationship in recent years. That is over. The U.S.-Israel relationship is everything. And the U.S. and Israel have to be so synced up. And they were, I'm not saying they weren't synced up, but this is, we're, we're just in a whole new world. But it, it really feels to me like it's the U.S. and Israel right now versus the world in ways that I've never seen before. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. And by the way, I think it's the, the one thing that Israelis really found heartwarming in this whole a terrible time that we're there that we're going through, but there is mounting criticism uh, against Israel in the United States. How long can the Biden administration keep this up? This this unwavering support. It's an election year. I mean, how long can this can this continue? Do you think? I um. So l let me say as as um you you both made clear. I'm I don't look for ways to to uh, heap praise on the Biden administration. <laughs> But uh, I, uh, I have been quite impressed with how President Biden and his team have handled things since October 7th, and it bears mentioning. I hope it continues. I, th I think it will. Again, I, as I've said repeatedly in the U.S. on television, it, if you would have told me 
you know, on October 6th that there's going to be a major attack against Israel the next day. And within days, the commander-in-chief of the most powerful army in the world, the most powerful military in the world, would be on a plane to Israel, meeting with Israel's war cabinet, standing shoulder to shoulder, deploying the assets that the Biden administration has deployed, military assets in the region. I know that it's caught up in congressional finger-pointing right now, but I think eventually Congress will pass a $14-plus billion package and deploying extraordinary assets. They're already dis- deploying a lot of supplies to Israel. Uh, it's, um, it's quite impressive. I And the statements coming out of the administration, more or less, that is to say, there are some things coming out of the administration that I don't like, but even just in recent days, if you look at Matt Miller, the State Department spokesman, he's taking on reporters. I mean, the transcript is worth reading the transcript. It's I just posted some of the exchanges on Twitter. Here he is saying, you know, the, 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 the press in the State Department briefing room are pressing him on what's happening at these hospitals in Gaza. And he's saying, doesn't Hamas have some responsibility here? Hamas is choosing to set up their, their, their command centers in hospitals, underneath hospitals. I mean, I, you know the arguments, but to see the State Department spokesman make these arguments and really lay them out in a way that he, I could just tell he was genuinely annoyed that this is a serious conversation based on how Hamas is operating and the questions are all about Israel's uh, behavior in this operation. And then, he get, and then he gets right into all the issue about the fuel and whether or not Hamas is hoarding fuel rather than giving to the hospitals, whether or not these hospitals are being told to turn away Israeli fuel. And uh, two weeks ago, when both John Kirby at the White House and Matt Miller at the State Department, both, it was clearly synchronized. I've been involved in those joint briefings where all the spokesmen from all the agencies go out with the same statement at the same time. They clearly prepped this. They all started to take apart the notion that Hamas that the, that the Gazan Health Ministry is a credible independent source on casualties, and they both did it from the podium in, these, in the White House briefing room. So it's very impressive. I think President Biden, because I know some in his administration are not thrilled with, this, with the approach he's taking, and my understanding is President Biden himself feels strongly about it. This is him personally, and he intends to stick with it. And even just in recent days, he was asked, what about the ceasefire? When will there be a ceasefire? He explicitly said, there will be no ceasefire, which is just incredible. He didn't, he didn't dance. So the question is 2024. That's the question. And there are two sources of political liability for the president heading into a re-election campaign on this issue. One is the progressive left. And does Biden worry about a, an unenthusiastic or depressed base that could hurt him very much in a, a close re-election. Sure, he should be concerned about that. And he, no, no president wants to go into a re-elect with their base uh, unenthusiastic. I would venture to say that his base will be just fine, no matter what, especially considering who President Biden is likely to be running against in the general election. I don't think his base will um, will need reasons for uh, to, to be jolted with caffeine. I think they'll be motivated. The sub-issue of that is the is the Arab community, specifically in Michigan, which people point to all the time. I worked in Michigan politics. I worked for a senator. I actually worked for a uh, Lebanese-American senator, Spence Abraham. This is a million years ago in the 1990s. Uh, The Arab community in in Dearborn, Michigan, is is a strong community. It's one of the largest Arab communities outside the Middle East, anywhere. But, and I'm not taking anything away from them, but it represents something like less than 1% of the electorate in Michigan. If Joe Biden is running so close that that vote is the deciding difference in Michigan, he's going to lose the election regardless, because that just means he's losing in so many other places. So I cannot imagine that's a factor. 
On the other hand, so, so take the risk of the base and the Muslim, Arab Muslim vote in Michigan off the table. On the other hand, independent voters will matter a lot. President Biden has a real hard time with independent voters right now. You watch what's going on in the streets these days in the United States, in major cities. You watch what's going on in our college campuses. It is so disorienting for me as a Jew. It's, it's, it's an incredibly, I've never felt vulnerable in the United States ever. I've never felt vulnerable as a Jew. I'm a son of a Holocaust survivor. I've raised with these stories. My mother was always telling me I had a million reasons to feel vulnerable. I, ne- I mean, I, I, it's in the water in my home. I mean, I, 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 growing up, I know, that I, I know the story. I've internalized it, but I never actually walked out the door and felt vulnerable. This is the first time in my life that I've actually ever felt vulnerable as a Jew. But what's striking to me is how many other people I know who aren't Jewish that are watching what's going on, and they're freaked out. And these are not Demo- you know, partisan Democrats and partisan Republicans. They're not political professionals. They're just regular people. They are classic swing voters who can go either way. And they are looking at this craziness. Now, they were already starting to feel it, the kind of intersectionality and the the powerless versus the powerful frame that was playing out on, you know, schools and colleges. But but the, the anti-Semitism piece has just reached, taken this whole thing to a fever pitch. And it's, I think if President Biden has a sister soldier moment and stands against that, I'm not here to give him political advice because there are plenty of people running for president who I'd rather be president than than Joe Biden. However, I do think if he has the equivalent of Bill Clinton and a sister soldier moment, taking that on, particularly now, it will not only resonate with many Jewish voters, I think it will resonate with many non-Jewish voters in the center who see what's going on in response. I mean, again, they will say... We thought the outrage, I've heard my non-Jewish friends say this, we thought the out, and these aren't politically conservative people, they were just, they say, we thought the outrage would be directed at the people who did to Israel on October 7th, the the barbarism of, of what was done to Israel on October 7th. We thought the outrage would be directed at them. It turns out the outrage is, is, is directed at Jews for being, for objecting to being slaughtered. That's who the outrage is being directed. They find it so disorienting, and it is a, it is like a proxy for them that things in the U.S. are kind of coming undone. And if Joe Biden can seem to be taking that on and therefore, in a sense, taking on his own, I, you know, again, I'm not here to give him political advice, but I think it would be a pretty good political strategy to reach the center. This may have to be our closing question to you on on the Jewish community uh, in America. And the, the picture you paint there is is one that has a sort of shared feeling you know you you know you're describing a feeling across the board i'm just wondering i've you know seen those pictures of people marching in or doing a demonstration in grand central station jewish voice for peace you've got a lot of camp jews on campus i'm talking younger jews mirroring in a way the divide that's in the democratic party between you know joe biden the old guy who loves israel and the younger ones who are agitating in another direction, isn't that being mirrored a bit even inside the American Jewish community where younger Jews are not actually completely on the script that you've just voiced? They are instead among those who are saying, yeah, yeah, 7th of October, terrible, but right now our focus is on Gaza, the hospitals, and so on, and who are among those calling for Joe Biden to put a restraining hand on the wheel held by, by Netanyahu and Israel. So 
I okay, so I think that that segment is small. I think it's it's really small. What what I've been struck by is the number of very assimilated, very in most cases pretty secular Jews in the U.S. who were very moderate at most. Many of them very left, not hard left, but kind of center left, who have been completely radicalized by the world by the world's reaction to. Uh, October 7th. So yes, there are some on the way extreme, and I really would in the Jewish community, there are some on the way extreme who represent Jewish voices for peace, but again, I think it represents a minuscule percentage where you're seeing the real action is, I think, the center to kind of center-left Jews who were horrified by the Trump years, and they were viewed themselves as, as you know, very partisan Democrats. Very, This is a group that was very critical of Israel during the depths of the of the Netanyahu years, the you know, with the judicial reform fight. And that group, I think, has has come back. And so you're seeing a lot of solidarity across the political spectrum, except for the way extreme. But I again I, I think that represents a tiny percentage. And I I just think it's important to and I know you're seeing a lot of this, Jonathan, in the UK, but what is so shocking to so many people, not just me, but I think people on the center left religiously and politically in the Jewish world, is it used to be before October 7th, if people wanted to be critical of Israel, they bent over backwards to make clear that it was criticism of Israel, but they're still, you know, I'm talking about non-Jews now, but they're not, this is not an anti-Semitic uh, focus, this is not an anti-Semitic lens, it's it's distinctive from their views about the Jews and the Jewish role in America, Jewish life in America. And I just think the open association with symbols and history and horrors of a previous era that would you would normally feel was, would stigmatize you. There, there, people are now more and more embracing the stigma. So I'll give you an example. We just had, in recent days, the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, which, you know, 1938, the, the organized vandalism and destruction of Jewish properties, Jewish-owned businesses in Germany, which was really a early signs of what was to come. This was the thing in the U.S. and in Canada on the 85th anniversary. So, you know, Heather Reisman, for instance, who's the CEO of Indigo, which is the largest book chain in, who's Jewish, largest book chain in Canada. It's like the, you know, the Barnes & Noble of Canada. They, on the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, they vandalized her stores and put red blood, you know, red paint all over the place and put up signs calling her not CEO, but CGO, Chief genocidal officer. Uh, there are businesses in New York City that have been, van- there's businesses in Europe that have been, you would think, oh, hey, we shouldn't do this this week, because this week's the anniversary of Kristallnacht. We don't want to be associated with the anniversary of Kristallnacht. It's the opposite. It's, th- th- there's no stigma that's just open open embrace of it, and, and almost proud of the association. And so I think for most Jews, except, Jonathan, you're right, there may be some on the way extreme, but most Jews who I know wanted nothing to do with the right in the United States before October 7th, wanted to do nothing, nothing with the right in Israel before October 7th, and were certainly religiously not on the right. I'm not saying they're embracing the right. They just know they want, they are very scared about the extreme left. And I think in that sense, you're seeing this this ground swell of solidarity in the Jewish world. Look, I'm just coming from the, from this, I mean, I'm coming to you guys literally minutes after this rally in in Washington. 
So the current counts were something like over 200,000 Jews or 200,000 people showing up. Now we'll get the exact numbers, but I'd be hard-pressed to find pre-October 7th the reason that 200,000 Jews in the United States with five days' notice? I mean, it's not like they've been planning this for months. They planned this last, they announced it last week. I mean, my kid's school, a notice went out to the parents late last week saying, we're going, we're taking 500 kids to Washington, D.C., and we're schlepping from New York, which is, you know, five-hour bus ride each way. And there are people here from California, and there are people here from Dallas, and there are Jewish communities from Boston, from people flew here from Canada. I don't think you would have gotten that solidarity, Jonathan, at any other time. I don't think you would have gotten this kind of solidarity, even if there are some fringe elements that are still critical of Israel. It was such a pleasure having you on, Dan. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, guys. It was great. Thank you, Dan. The book is The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. Uh, Dan wrote it with Saul Singer. Of course, he also co-wrote the book that we mentioned, Startup Nation. It's also uh, Dan's uh, coinage. And you can catch the whole conversation, also what Dan thinks about our podcast, on his own podcast, which is called Call Me Back this week. And you can listen to that. And he, Dan, was very struck by a recent episode of this podcast. He was kind enough to talk about that, which a lot of you have been coming, you know, responding to and talking to us about. And that was the episode that we titled War Therapy. It was a very candid, no holds barred conversation between you and me, Yoni, no guest. Um, it was in the manner of therapy. It was just over about 50 minutes. Both of us said to each other, I think that may be the t- all the time we have. Um, but it got a big <laughs> response. I think it did strike a chord. So you can catch up with that one too, the episode War Therapy. And we will say thank you to our invaluable team, to Guy Glaser and Omer Primat. And uh, we shall meet next week, Jonathan. We will. See you then, Yonit. See ya. <laughs>